0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID 19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. It's a race against time to get as many people vaccinated as possible and develop herd immunity around the globe as the COVID-19 virus mutates. There are concerns that there's a risk of a widening immunity gap in addition to fairness considerations. Widespread deployment of vaccines is seen as the key to reviving battered economies everywhere, and as South African billionaire Johan Rupert makes world headlines for jumping the queue in Switzerland, Getting a vaccine shot as early as December, we explore how global collaboration is being jeopardised at the expense of the developing world. Coming up, we speak to Theo Murphy, European Council on Foreign Relations, for an overview of the geopolitical dynamics and how these impact on countries like South Africa. And this debate is not just about access to vaccines, but access to the most potent vaccines, as we hear from our partners at Bloomberg, later on in this episode.
2: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: More than 138,000 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in January in South Africa so far. That's according to Health Minister's William Kese. He says South Africa recorded 647 coronavirus-related deaths in a 24-hour period, pushing the total number of confirmed deaths to just under 40,000. The worst hit provinces are the Eastern Cape and Western Cape, with just under 10,000 deaths reported in each province. Among those to have died this week is Minister in the Presidency and former ANC Chief Whip Jackson Mtembu. As of this week, nearly 98 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported around the world and just under 2.1 million people have died. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre. South Africa will pay more than $5, or about 80 rand per dose, for 1.5 million shots of AstraZeneca's coronavirus vaccine from the Serum Institute of India. That's according to Health Department Deputy Director-General Anban Pillay, who told Reuters that the price is based on South Africa's status as an upper-middle-income country under a World Bank classification. Now this price is higher than the three dollars or roughly 44 rand a dose that South Africa and other countries on the continent are due to pay for the same vaccine under an African Union arrangement. South Africa is hosting clinical trials of the vaccine developed by AstraZeneca in partnership with Oxford University, so the pricing differential raises questions. The United Kingdom is believed to have spent between 24 pounds and 28 pounds or more than 500 rand, per dose on the Moderna jab. That's according to the Daily Mail. The domestically produced Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine cost the government around £3, or roughly £50 per jab, according to the BBC, while the Pfizer-BioNTech jab has a price tag of around £15, which is just under 300 rand. Over in Israel, which is leading the global race to vaccinate populations, the authorities initially claimed to be paying the equivalent of £22, or 400 rand, per dose of the Pfizer jab, which is substantially more than the UK is shelling out. And the price paid by the Israelis may be even higher, with a health official telling broadcaster Cannes that each dose has actually cost the country almost double it. Meanwhile, Belgium's Budget State Secretary Eva de Blierke gave an insight into what the EU is paying when she accidentally tweeted a table last month that showed the price of each jab. The now-deleted tweet revealed that the EU is handing over the equivalent of about 40 rand for each dose of the Oxford vaccine and more than 200 rand for each dose of the Pfizer version. The Twitter gaffe was noted across the Atlantic, where the New York Times noted that the table also shows that the US was paying above the odds for the Pfizer vaccine, about 300 rand a dose. In Russia, the manufacturers of the one-dose Sputnik vaccine said in a statement back in November that the cost of its vaccine for international markets will be less than $10 per dose starting from February. Thus, Sputnik V will be two or more times cheaper than foreign vaccines based on mRNA technology with similar efficacy rates, the company said. UK government officials have suggested paying people to stay at home if they test positive for coronavirus amid concerns too many are failing to get tested or comply with the lockdown rules. While the plan has not been given final approval, a draft government policy paper proposed payments of £500. That's the equivalent of 10,000 rand. Currently, only those on the lowest incomes receive support at this level if they're told to quarantine. The policy, which would cost about £2 billion a month, would be designed to overcome people's fear of losing income if forced to self-isolate by a positive test, according to a document obtained by The Guardian newspaper and confirmed to Bloomberg. South Africa has a three-month plan to import, store and distribute coronavirus vaccines for frontline healthcare workers through a contract with pharmaceutical company BioVac Institute. This is according to a letter from the National Treasury This is the first detail on how the government plans to roll out its COVID-19 vaccine plan, following concerns that the creaking public health system would not be able to manage a large-scale vaccination program without the involvement of the private sector. That's according to Bloomberg News Service. A drug developed by Eli Lilly dramatically reduces the risk of developing symptomatic COVID-19. This was found in a study involving nursing home residents. The company said that of just under 300 residents, half of whom received a placebo, those randomized to receive the drug bamlanivimab had up to an 80% lower risk of contracting COVID-19. This is according to a study that has not yet been published, says USA Today. Healthcare providers at the same nursing homes were statistically less likely to contract a symptomatic COVID-19 after receiving that same drug. Among more than 40 residents who already tested positive for the virus, None died after receiving the drug, compared with four deaths in the placebo group. Robust demand in China, which is VW's largest market, has helped the German manufacturer rebound from the coronavirus outbreak that sparked the most widespread shutdown of global car production since World War II. Bloomberg reports that although global vehicle deliveries fell about 15% to 9.3 million, VW has emerged with a small gain in market share, as some peers took a bigger hit. In the US, President Joe Biden has warned the nation to prepare for its darkest days in the year-long pandemic, predicting that as many as 100,000 more Americans will die over the next month, as he overhauls the federal coronavirus response and presses Congress for more aid. He is quoted as saying, Let me be very clear. Things are going to continue to get worse before they get better. The brutal truth is it's going to take months before we can get the majority of Americans vaccinated. President Biden signed a series of executive orders that would impose testing and mask requirements for travellers, produce federal guidance to reopen schools, and bolster domestic manufacturing of supplies to combat the virus. In addition, he was flanked by a new team of scientists and doctors, including Anthony Fauci, one of the world's best-known infectious disease experts. Richmond chairman Johann Rupert has received his first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine at a clinic his family has investment ties to in Switzerland. This has sparked a controversy in the country about who should get inoculated first. Bloomberg reports that the South African billionaire got the shot at Hearst London AG, which is owned by the MediClinic International Group, a hospital operator the Rupert family has invested in through Remgro. Swiss newspaper Tigers Anzeiger said he was one of 12 test patients in the canton of Turgau, shortly before vaccinations were offered to a wider public. Rupert's wealth and connection to Herslanden raised concern that he got preferential treatment and jumped the line as a vast majority of the Swiss elderly and high-risk population still wait for the shot. Nina Schlefli, a socialist politician, said in a tweet... This is an affront to all Thurgau residents who have been waiting for a vaccination appointment for weeks. Rupert said his physician had arranged the vaccination because he is 70 and has comorbidities as defined by Swiss law. The country has started vaccinations for various groups of people, including those over 75 or with serious health issues. He is quoted as saying, "...we need herd immunity as soon as possible for the world to avert massive unemployment and chaos." I have been a Swiss taxpayer since the start of Richemont 31 years ago, he said. He also said that Richemont's executive committee decided in December that management would get vaccinated as early as possible to set an example for employees. Blomberg says that Rupert is a resident of Satigny, a village in the canton of Geneva. Switzerland started preliminary inoculations on December the 23rd before the national start on January the 12th. The country has administered just under 170,000 vaccine doses, according to the Swiss Health Ministry. But the government has been criticized for its delayed publication of the numbers amid a perceived slow rollout of inoculations in the country of 8.5 million. Rupert is also a prominent member of the wealthy elite in South Africa, says Bloomberg, and it notes that the country is some way down the queue for vaccines, with only 1.5 million doses ordered to date for a population of more than 60 million. Bloomberg also notes that Rupert is the country's richest person with a net worth of 8.4 billion US dollars, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. His family has committed 1 billion rand to South Africa's Solidarity Fund to support small businesses and save jobs.
2: Inside COVID 19, News.
1: Theo Murphy, Africa Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, unpacks vaccine apartheid. That is playing out around the world.
0: Our role is in, in looking at the geopolitics of it. We're not health experts, but we do understand something about foreign policy. And the geopolitics come into the to the COVID vaccine issue via um, the simple fact that there is a scarcity globally. And with scarcity comes for those who then possess the vaccine in excess. So those who have more than enough for their domestic population but also have some that they can use externally that that turns it into a kind of uh, a commodity or a geopolitical currency you can imagine you could you can sell it you can give it you can you could there can be a transactional quid pro quo um you need a vaccine we need a port something like that and 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 this is this is the game that's very much afoot the west and particularly europe has been a bit disadvantaged in this because Production is limited, that's what leads to scarcity. So the production of the vaccine is, is very limited. And what Europe has suggested should be the resource for the low-income parts of the world and some of the middle-income parts, which a lot of them are to be found in Africa, is a multilateral mechanism that was created in the spring called the COVAX. This is kind of an idea of sharing manufacturing costs and making contributions and, and then based on the principle of equitable access. So all countries pay in, all countries participate, and all countries get the equal amount out. What happened, unfortunately, um, is vaccine nationalism, which I think, you know, was kicked off in the early phase of the pandemic when there was PPE nationalism as well. The vaccine nationalism played out as follows. The same producers, which the COVAX facility relies on, are the producers that European and the U.S. went to for bilateral vaccine acquisition. So there's a sort of double dipping. COVAX needs a limited amount of produced vaccines, but these are already spoken for by COVAX's own Western backers who have purchased and acquired it bilaterally. And their bilateral deals with the vaccine producers have precedence over what COVAX gets. So Europe has Europe taken care of itself. So has North America. What's left then in COVAX? COVAX basically, if you rely on COVAX and you have no other way to acquire the vaccine, you will be waiting much longer. That's one, because others will get served first. Second, COVAX has only been able to pledge to vaccinate 20% of all of these populations. That's very complicated when in one breath we refer to the vaccine as a global public health good. It's a global good, should be equitable is implied. On the other hand, we say, well, if you have the good fortune of having money, you can vaccinate more, maybe 60% of your population, eventually 100. If you don't, uh 20% is just fine. I don't see how a country that is receiving only 20%, how a leader of that country can adequately, dis, you know, explain that to their to their population. That really looks like um people have employed the phrase, you know, vaccine segregation or apartheid. It's hard-edged word, it's not entirely inaccurate. Now China comes in because the West has, on a, has, has relied on a limited set of manufacturers. China set up its own manufacturing, Russia as well, but China, China a bit stronger. The other distinct um, characteristic of China is that its domestic management of the outbreak has been more effective, which means it needs less vaccine domestically, which means in turn what it produces it can use externally. And that's what we've now been seeing playing out. So, so China using this as it has used other assets it had in the past in its relationship with Africa to create inroads. So coming with the vaccine, saying, first of all, it'll be cheaper than the Western one. Second, we will be able to supply it in abundance. We're very sorry that COVAX can't do that for you. And you know, and then going on from there. The suggestion that, that I made in an ECFR publication was that. First of all, you know, Europe should recognize that this is a um, this is a question of, of opportunity, not of charity. So if we go back to the system competition with China that's taking place in Africa, Europe should realize that it's not just out of the goodness of your hearts that they should help uh, be you know be a strong partner for Africa, but also because it helps strengthen the relationship. And if the relationship falters, there are others like China waiting in the wings. What can we do? Europe can't magically double down, uh, um, up its production. It can't and and it's really a domestic issue here as well. It would be, I think, difficult when Germany is is suffering terribly, and then we find out that you know half of the uh, half of its allotted vaccines already went off to Africa. But one could there's there's a kind of game-changing option out there, which is not easy, but I think also not impossible, and that would be help Africa manufacture its own. That is possible, but there's a real sort of Gordian knot around the issue of intellectual property, which the pharmaceutical companies are, are understandably not keen to give up. But there's been a lot of advocacy from um, from important African states, particularly from South Africa, at the World Trade Organization and, and in other forums, arguing for for a kind of momentary pause to the regulations which prevent this kind of intellectual property and knowledge transfer. So the idea would be that Europe, without creating a whole new legal precedent, could make an exception. And Europe has invested public money in the development of some of these key Western pharmaceutical producers. It's not just private funds, it's also public money. So there is is a bit of a lever that the European Union and European governments have to encourage that conversation. There's been a kind of agreement in principle that this IP and knowledge transfer could take place on a on a voluntary basis, but what I argue is that we need to concretize that. It's going to just remain rhetoric if we don't show that there's you know there's there's rubber hitting the road on this, and I think that would be great. That's something that China has not offered, and in a sense it would you know it would reframe the whole issue and change uh, it would move the goalposts. There wouldn't be any more about who can get who can give you or donate you. The most vaccines, or give them at the cheapest price. You would say, forget that whole competition. Instead, we're going to help you produce your own.
1: There are some moves in South Africa to produce vaccines, but clearly not moving fast enough. What could governments do to help facilitate this idea that you've put forward?
0: I think basically that they need to politically get behind it. They need to back it. So there, there's there's been some positive signs. There's um, you know there's been some discussions about it, but. I think decisions need to be taken. That's basically what has to happen.
1: And across Africa?
0: Well, not all African countries have a sort of nascent pharmaceutical production capacity. South Africa is tops. Ethiopia has one. Of course, North Africa does, but that doesn't necessarily filter down to sub-Saharan Africa. So so Egypt and Morocco. There is a third one in, I want to say, definitely in Nigeria. Um, There may even be another one. So, you know, then... But there's a mechanism in Africa, as you know, the AVATT, which was championed by uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, but which is an AU-wide mechanism for supporting acquisition and production of the vaccine. So, you know, one could work through this Africa-wide structure to, to see about how you could apportion vaccine production if you had the IP. So, you know, if you have the IP and the knowledge transfer, it will allow you to leapfrog way ahead and move into production sooner. You won't be able to start tomorrow, so there'll still be a gap in in vaccines. But looking at the way the global production is going, I know Africa is going to be waiting a long time anyway. So it it wouldn't be wise. I I wouldn't counsel saying, well, production, uh, building up our own production capacity also takes a long time, so we shouldn't pursue it.
2: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: Next. Our partners at Bloomberg report that while the U.S., Britain and the EU have given citizens not far off more than half the shots administered globally, vast numbers of countries have yet to begin their campaigns. James Payton reports that disparities pose a threat to both have and have not states.
3: The world, in a way, is splitting into two tiers today. We see wealthier countries, as you say, including the U.S., Britain, members of the European Union ramp up their immunization campaigns. And despite some inevitable snags along the way, those efforts are, are progressing. They're well underway. At the same time, many developing and middle-income nations around the world have uh, yet to begin their rollouts, or they're only just starting up. Uh, and just this week, the head of the World Health Organization said around 50 higher income nations had begun their uh, vaccine drives. And we keep track of this at Bloomberg globally. The, the Bloomberg tracker shows almost uh, 50 million doses so far have been administered. The problem is only one of the world's lowest income countries had had started as of a couple of days ago, according to the WHO, and had given uh, just 25 Doses to individuals. That's two five, 25 doses. Now, people who've been following this issue closely won't be surprised that there's a gap because the world has been moving in this direction for some months with major economies like the US and, and UK aggressively snapping up billions of doses in recent months and striking supply deals with manufacturers. But now, here we are in a situation where there's a risk of a widening. Immunity gap. And of course, there are significant ethical considerations. You talk about the fairness of this, um, which is uh, a huge factor. The director of the WHO said the world, in his words, uh, is now on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure. But this is also a huge public health and, and economic um, problem, potentially as well. Uh, you know, widespread deployment of vaccines is seen by disease authorities as well as financial experts as the as the key to getting the virus under control reviving battered economies uh, so the implications are significant no matter where you are and and obviously if we allow the virus to continue to advance in large parts of the world without vaccines to protect the population then the virus could get an edge and we could see new variants and you know the the, the level of concern could rise so that's why this is such an urgent issue um, and why there's a need you know according to Um, public health authorities to move swiftly here.
2: Now, as you say, there have been numerous calls and certainly efforts to make vaccine distribution more equitable around the globe. One such effort is something called COVAX. And I was wondering if you might talk a bit about what its role has been in terms of this equity debate.
3: Yeah, so as you say, there have been ambitious global efforts to tackle this disparity, to address this problem. Many months ago, the uh, WHO and a group called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, formed this program called COVAX, as you say, To, and the goal is basically to equitably deploy vaccines to every corner of the planet. And um, this initiative recently announced that it had secured I believe it was almost 2 billion doses for the world and would start rolling out those uh, inoculations in the first months of 2021 that that could begin in earnest in February, I believe. But again, the um, the WHO this week issued some pretty dire uh, comments suggesting that several countries had expressed concern about whether COVAX would have enough vaccines to meet demand and that with um, so many countries now pursuing their own direct supply agreements with manufacturers rather than going through COVAX, that it could jeopardize global collaboration and even bump up the prices of vaccines, which which would further exacerbate the challenge of getting doses to the uh, developing world. So some of the experts I've talked to point out that... Um, some countries now are getting increasingly anxious about the, the timing and the quantities of of COVID vaccine doses. We're seeing a flurry of these bilateral negotiations between countries and drug makers that are proceeding separately from Covax. Uh, and you know, vaccine advocates are, are aware of this problem, and so they've called on, on countries and, and companies to to take some steps to uh, address it. So there's significant. Work and discussion uh, underway, though, uh, clearly the um, the urgency is growing as we as we enter a new phase of the pandemic in 2021.
2: And I wanted to go back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier, which is the proportion to which countries, particularly wealthy countries, have been able to secure specific vaccines. You know, what is the distribution in terms of, say, the supply of Pfizer vaccines versus Moderna vaccines or even, say, the AstraZeneca vaccine? Which type of vaccine is going to which country?
3: Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting question. So um, and some of the people I've talked to have suggested that this isn't just a question of access to vaccines globally, but it's also an issue of access to um, highly potent vaccines or the best vaccines. And The arrival of shots from uh, Pfizer and Moderna, both of which generated efficacy levels of around 95%, uh, pretty remarkable results in late stage clinical trials, that has sparked the question of whether the entire world will be able to secure the same level of protection uh, for their populations. And uh, wealthy countries have, have largely bought up the doses um, of those two vaccines. Uh, the data that we've, that we've seen shows um, that they've uh, high-income nations have secured something like 85% of the Pfizer doses and 100% of the Moderna doses um, thus far. Now, much of the world is going to be relying on vaccines from uh, AstraZeneca, the UK drug maker and its partner, the University of Oxford, uh, along with a Chinese company called Sinovac, potentially a vaccine from Johnson and Johnson and a number of others that are that are uh, coming uh, soon potentially. Now even if those vaccines don't match the same headline efficacy numbers, you know these vaccines have been tested for their ability to prevent symptoms. Health authorities say that when it comes to preventing severe disease and suffering and deaths, um, the most important factors to consider. Uh, The data we've seen so far suggests that uh, the, the first vaccines could be comparable, but all of these vaccines could end up diverging in terms of side effects and how long their protection could last, how efficient they are in actually stopping the spread of the virus, which will become even more critical, I think, in the coming months. So the, the jury's still out, and it, it's going to be important to consider some of those issues in light of the access disparities we're seeing. Uh, clearly, the, the first vaccines out of the gates, um, you know, those um, wealthy countries uh, have been quite aggressive in, in buying up those doses. Um, but AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford, in particular, um, are seen as playing a, a really critical role now uh, in getting uh, vaccines to the rest of the world.
2: As we've been talking about, wealthier nations have been able to secure, in some cases, not just enough doses to immunize their populations, but actually double the amount of doses they would need to immunize their populations, specifically countries such as Canada or the U.K. or even the U.S. How have these nations reacted thus far to calls for them perhaps to share their doses, um, their unused doses or doses that they have secured but may not actually need?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we have seen some steps by Uh, some wealthy countries in in recent days and weeks. I I believe Canada has pledged to invest in a mechanism to uh, redistribute doses. Norway just said it would donate some extra supplies. Um, So there is you know plenty of focus on this issue and and reason to think that you know some of these efforts uh to narrow that divide will succeed and that that um some of these countries may you know share some of these doses reallocate some of these doses um uh but you know this is a scenario that people have been warning about for about a year and there there is some skepticism about when you know when that will happen um i think it's also important to uh, stress that with the incoming Biden administration, we're likely to see some major moves to uh, shake up the vaccine effort and the COVID response. And that could have interesting implications that have a, a ripple effect well beyond U.S. borders. Um, you know, there are signs that the U.S. now is set to join COVAX and, and reengage with the World Health Organization. So that could be a turning point uh, in a way. We'll just have to wait and see. But in the global effort, that could be um, that could be significant.
1: brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.